The Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by our friends at World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support, now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in New York City, Washington, D.C., L.A., Miami, San Francisco, many other cities. They've also formed Hashtag Chefs for America, a coalition of restaurants and tech companies working together to provide meals to Americans that need assistance. And they're supporting workers in local hospitals who are working in wartime-like conditions, as well as local restaurants who've been impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. How are they doing that? By launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics Fighting on the front lines, go to wck.org to learn about initiatives like Frontline Foods, Off Their Plate, Feed the Frontline in Los Angeles, which is something I've donated to, and East Bay Feed ER. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us. And keep your local restaurants alive. Learn more at wck.org. We're also brought to you by Spotify, and not just because they own The Ringer, Wanted to tell you about the uh, Spotify app for podcasts, which is basically just in the app. All you have to do, search for a podcast. They have a library of over 750,000 podcasts. So if you're looking for a Ringer podcast, like the Dave Chang Show, the Rewatchables, the Ringer NBA Show, even Zach Lowe's podcast on ESPN, The Low Post, he's coming on in a second. Search for that. Once you find it, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. You can load up as many podcasts as you want. You can play them on seven different speeds. 0.5 is the slowest. Zach and I will sound like we're drunk if you listen to us at 0.5. You can speed us up to three times if you're a lunatic. Uh, the app connects to different cars. I Look, I don't want to app shame you, but you should at least try out a podcast on Spotify. Check it out. It's as easy as I just described. And speaking of checking out stuff, TheRinger.com, still cranking out sports, pop culture, and a whole bunch of other things. We have some good stuff in the works. We have not slowed down despite all the stuff that's going on. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're listening to the doctors and scientists. We're going to get through this at some point. We're trying to get some content for you. So I know everybody's bored out there. I know uh, I know it's been tough times, but uh, we're just trying to do our job over here. And I uh, hope you're staying safe. Coming up, me, Zach Lowe, the 2001 Redraftables here on The Book of Basketball. All right, the redraftables continues. I was on his podcast last week doing our belated MVP ballot. This week, Zach Lowe and I are redrafting the 2001 draft, which is one of the last drafts where just all hell broke loose. Uh, and it's a really weird one to look at again. First of all, um, how much old basketball are you watching these days now that we are in week four of the quarantine? Not as much as you would think, honestly. Um, not not that much. Like, seriously, I, I I have a lot of work to do. I feel like I have a lot of work to do. Like, they still want some of my regular columns. Um, there's the whole, like, is the NBA coming back news story that we're all kind of tracking. And I've kind of tried to lean into, like, I want to cover what teams are doing now rather than full-on nostalgia mode. And then when it gets to, like, 9, 9.30 at night, 
my wife doesn't want to watch all basketball. She wants to have a glass of wine. And she got me into the great, the, I'm watching the great British Bake Off right now. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. Look at you. Uh, what these so, people can do is unbelievable. Russell and I did a podcast yesterday and kind of stumbled into a conversation that I got increasingly excited about since we've done it. And I think I'm probably a little too pessimistic about sports coming back. But if the NBA was able to figure it out, one of the, things, one of the hurdles I couldn't get past was how weird it would be to watch everybody in empty arenas and how nonsensical that would be. And as we were kind of talking it out, I was saying, well, it would actually make more sense if they did it in like high school gyms, um, smaller facilities, places like that. And then um, had somebody who knows things told me that practice facilities actually could be the way that they're going to do this. And there's some benefits there. One is that way less people involved with the practice facility. The teams basically, I think, does every team own some semblance of a practice facility at this point, right? All 30? Yeah, either that or they, well, there are a couple that have it in their arenas. Yes, I wonder if there are any that just straight up practice in their arena, regular arena floor anymore. I'm not sure there are. So you would cut down on the people that were actually working there. And then from a media standpoint, the way that they could do the cameras would actually be pretty cool because everything would be so close to the court and there's no fans. You could get way more creative and basically make it look like the most awesome version of a scrimmage ever. Like, you know, when they have the famous dream team, 92 scrimmages and the, the footage leaked out of some of those games and it was like awesome to watch, but they're in a big arena. If you kind of confine that to some awesome little area and you just had them going in their uniforms. I, I'm starting to talk myself into this. I might just miss basketball, though. Well, the, pra the practice facilities have definitely been talked about. The NBA definitely sniffs, smells opportunity. Like, let's, let's, the, the brightest possible bright side of all this is if we can come back, even if there's no fans and the venues are weird and all that, like, people are dying to watch this on television. Like, it's an opportunity for us. People are trapped in their houses. They want to watch something. But the practice facility thing is like, you know, you read about uh, what baseball is trying to do with all the spring training facilities in Arizona versus this Vegas bubble thing that got some at least media traction. How many practice facilities are we using? Like, are we using one centralized one or are we are we decentralizing it again in this idea? That's the challenge to me is like, who's where? How many people have to hop from one place to another? Does anybody have to hop from one place to another? Where's the finals idea that that's, that's up in the air. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that I I'm officially on this point from this point forward, if we do do this, it's not going to be in the NBA arenas. And I think, I think people in the league have even kind of accepted that, that if this happens, it's gotta be a smaller venue. Maybe it's Pepperdine university for the Lakers, or maybe it's, you know, <laughs> some, some high school that's state-of-the-art in the L.A. area, or maybe it's the Lakers Training Center. Uh, you go on through, they'll figure it out. I'm not, I'm not that concerned. I also think if they do do it, it'll be just the playoff teams that come back. Um, it just makes it so much easier. And whether it's eight, we talked about eight teams. Do you do 12 teams last week on your pod? Um, maybe everybody gets a first-round bye, the top four seeds. The seeds five through 12 end up playing. But I... There's, they're certainly motivated financially to figure it out and Ooh. oh yeah, uh, on all sides. So yeah. we'll see how it goes. All right. We're going to talk about the 2001 draft. This 
was the first draft diary I did for ESPN. This wow. was I read yeah. it too. I read it. I reread it was your probably, draft diary. Yeah, it was probably like my sixth column I ever wrote for him. And I was really excited to unleash the concept of the draft diary on ESPN's audience. I remember they led the website with it. I was I was very excited. You were with your uh, dad. You were watching it with your dad. And uh, one of the dog the dogs were very Two of the a dogs. dog or multiple dogs were very excited about the draft. I can't remember. I can't remember how aggressively you talked yourself into Joe Forte in that um, in that draft diary, but we can talk about that. It was fairly aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing with Joe Forte, he actually was good at North Carolina. Like in the 2000 NCAA tournament, he made big plays, and you know I think there there was some stuff going on with him maybe off the court that derailed him to some degree. So I'm not sure what position he was. It's a classic like, oh, this guy will translate as a pro. And then he gets to the pros. You're like, well, you're six, two and a half, but you're not a point guard. What are you? Those guys with very rare exceptions don't seem to make it. But, um, you know, I remember one of the things thinking back to this draft, the Tony Parker thing lingering, this 19 year old French point guard, and being like, all right, that sounds great, but what are the odds this guy's going to make it? He's 19, he's from France, and he plays point guard. We've seen young point guards get chewed up left and right. Uh, when you think back to how you were looking at this draft in 2001, do you remember what storyline you were the most interested in? I think it was I think it was the the big men and the high school, you know, the peak of taking guys out of high school and you have, you know, we'll talk about the the all of that, I assume, but you know, just Curry, Chandler, Kwame, and like, is this the wave of the future? Is this just how the NBA is going to be now, taking taking high school guys and like all these seven footers coming in at once? That was definitely the main storyline. And then there was like some some like you know, R.I.P. But like Eddie Griffin was this sort of like weird skilled big guy. Like people didn't know what to do with him. And then you know, but but I remember the I remember the big guys at the top, obviously, and the contrast with Battier in particular, like classic college polished Duke guy versus like these raw seven foot high school dudes. The first four picks in the draft. If you go to uh, basketballreference.com, our friends at basketball reference. So I, I think are getting a lot of action these days. There's no college next to the first four picks. because Pau <laughs> Gasol also in there. Uh, and then the eighth pick to sign a Diop, no college. And then Vlad Radmanovich, number 12. See, it's six of the first 12 guys did not go to college, which was really unusual. And now is, I think, a little more typical. But and, and your guy and your guy, Kedrick Brown, went to Okaloosa Walton Community <laughs> right. College. Yeah, he was a Juco guy. So basically seven of the top 12 guys were not college guys. There was a sense that we felt at the time that something was really shifting with the draft, because by this point, Dirk was having real success as a foreign foreign player. Uh we started to hear the rumblings about Manu. Maybe the Spurs had lucked out. He was going to come over at some point. And then with the high schoolers, KG was now a top 15, top 12 guy. Kobe was rounding into a superstar. And there was a sense of where is this going? Where is this heading? Is this going to be completely different in 10 years? What's funny is this was really the last really super crazy high schoolers all at the top of the draft kind of yep. year. It, it it settled down after this. And you look at the top four picks. Washington at the first pick. And Michael Jordan um, was, I can't, he wasn't there yet. I think he was about to start. Those were, oh, no, no, no. He, yeah, he was, hold on. I can't remember how many years he was out. 
But he was in charge of this draft and there was a famous, he worked out with Kwame Brown and thought he had a lot of dog in him. And, and it was actually, uh, it was a bad assessment. One of many reasons why Michael Jordan turned out to be a bad executive and owner, but Washington had the first pick. So yeah, this was his two Washington seasons were 0102 and 0203. So he had this pick. And one of the ironies of this draft, you have Jerry Krause in Chicago who's trying to trade out brand who is really bullish on, I want to get Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry. I'm going to have basically the high school Mikhail and Parrish or the Mikhail or the Samson Olajuwon. So Eddie Br- brand is for sale. And Michael Jordan hated Jerry Krause so much. The most logical move for him in so many different ways is just flip the number one pick for Elton brand. And then bring him in. You have Rip Hamilton there already. You have Jordan. Like you could actually have been a, a a playoff team right away, but he hated Jerry Krause so much. Ends up taking Kwame Brown. Do you feel like Kwame Brown could have made it in a if if we play his career ten times? Is there six versions of the Kwame Brown career where he's like an all star? An all star is strong. Like I don't think he ever showed enough on offense to to be an all star. But to your point, like. His career was um, troubled so immediately by his Wizards experience, which is what, what is the name of that book about Jordan's um, time in the Wizards? The Washington Post. Guy. It's Michael like when, Leahy. Yeah. It's like when winning is all that matters or something like that. It's a fantastic. And so Jordan, I think Jordan hates the book and he probably should because it's just an unfiltered look. And one of the subplots of it is just how he famously just kind of broke Kwame Brown. So I think there probably is a version of his career that goes better. I mean, he he sustained for a while in the NBA as like a solid post-defender, backup big kind of dude and made a good amount of money. But I, I think there's definitely a version of his career that goes better. But offensively, like he just never really showed you much. Like all to be an all-star, you, you usually have to be a pretty damn good offensive player. I don't think he ever showed that. Well, unfortunately, he crossed his paths with MJ in his formative years. Stubborn, old, angry at everybody, MJ. Then eventually ends up on the Lakers with Kobe. I would say those were the two worst teammates he could have had. For If you're talking about a fragile guy with potential who, in a different circumstance, maybe there's an arc where he makes it. We talked on the 1998 draft about Nowitzki, how fortunate he was just to end up in Dallas. He ends up with the perfect coach, Don Nelson. He ends up with Steve Nash who takes him under his wing that first year. Nowitzki's super lonely. He's not happy in the NBA. He's wondering if he made a mistake. It's the lockout year. It's 50 games. It's a lot at once. There's a lot of pressure on him. He wants to go back at one point. He's like second-guessing his entire decision to come at that time. And his two, he's got Mark Stein and Steve Nash, basically, being like, no, no, it's good. And, And he rides it out and he makes it. But think like there's an alternate universe where he goes to... I don't know, Denver, or he goes to Memphis. Or Milwaukee. <laughs> or, yeah. Instead of, instead of trading True. him. Right. And maybe he ends up in Germany in two years. He's like, I'm just happier in Europe. So I look at Kwame. I always thought he was really athletic those early years. Remember the second half of his career? There were all these defensive metrics that he was actually like a really, really, really good defensive player. And he good at do, low post and do, all that he stuff. He could do real stuff on defense. Like he was a decent... It's a good defensive player for sure. So you have him. So you've Washington and they whiff on that. The Clippers, Elgin Baylor, I wrote this in the draft diary, made maybe the only good trade of his entire GM tenure until 2006. 
flips the Tyson Chandler pick number two for Elton Brand and buys in early on this really professional non-clipper kind of guy who just is a pro who handles his business, who's an automatic 2010. And that was a fantastic trade. Um, Third pick was Atlanta. And I think Pau Gasol was not maybe enthusiastic about going there or that, <laughs> like there was some sort of something that they, they didn't love. They end up flipping him doing this whole Memphis trade. And, uh, right. And so he goes there. Chicago's got the fourth pick. According to my uh, draft diary, they're doing a whole smoke screen, how much they want Pau Gasol. Really, they want a Curry. They want to do the Chandler Curry combo. So those were the first four picks. I felt this way in the moment. It's and and I, especially as it evolved and we knew Pau was good pretty quickly. It's always been interesting to me that MJ never went, never sniffed Pau. That if he was going to take a gamble on a young forward, that he wouldn't have clicked better with Pau. I don't know enough about the background of that, but do you remember anything about that? Why they didn't gravitate toward Pau? I don't remember. I don't remember. Uh, maybe it was too much of an unknown. Maybe there was still sort of like, do I trust the international guys kind of thing going on at that point? I don't know. I don't know why, but yeah, Pal walked in the league and was was pretty damn good. Because if you're a Wizards fan, you look back at this and you go, oh man, we could have had Pal and Rip Hamilton basically two years apart. We yeah. could have had MJ, who was still a 20-point scorer at the time, and, and the league was pretty weak back then. And I think Pal at least could have put up points right away. The Kwame thing was just, just went badly. And he had a lot of expectations too. I'm glad you defended the, um, the Clippers uh, acquisition of Elton Brand. Can we talk a second about Elton Brand just walks in the league as a rookie and averages 20 and 10? Like as a rookie, he's walked in 20 and 10. You can tell me about the limitations of his game. Like, you know, how how much did Elton Brand in his prime drive winning? I think he I think he's actually underrated in that aspect because we've sort of we've sort of downplayed post scoring and he wasn't a three point shooter and he wasn't like a seven footer with you know shot blocking skills that at an elite level and all that. But Elton Brand was freaking good and Tyson Chandler for Elton Brand. I mean that is like a crazy challenge trade. That is an amazing trade when he, that's like. It's not quite Luca for Trey because those guys were drafted at the same time, but it's like age wise, those guys were so like Elton was 21, I think, at the time of that trade. That like you don't see a lot of trades like that. And Elton was to walk in the league as a 20 and 10 guy is really, really hard. Well, the other thing, Tyson was a local LA kid. And I think people felt like the Clippers were going to take the local kid. They didn't want to take another kid. And they and Elton, even though he was only heading to his third year. I think is just, you know, he, they, he's a GM now. Like he was always kind of a mature younger guy. And I think they, they really valued that. Um, an unbelievable trade really. Like when you think of all the bad trades, Elger Baylor made and how great that one was, you talked about how he was underrated. We talked about this a little bit in the 99 pod, uh, Elton in that 0506 Clipper season when they really could have made the finals that year. I think I was going to those games. Elton was like 25 and 11 every single night and was weirdly valuable on defense too. I I, I thought he was a, good a top 10 guy player. that year. Yeah. He was mobile. He was smart. He has super long arms that made up for like a kind of a, his lack of fight, at least when he played some five, he was like an odd, he was that year. He was amazing. 
that was his best year. And then he was automatic other than that year, 20 and 10. Before he tore his Achilles, he was just a, he was a walking 20 and 10. He was a good, smart defensive player. And you could go to him at least that year at the end of games, which wasn't always the case with him. But that year, he he was, I got to say, a little Duncan-ish. Because um, that was, the Duncan apex was kind of on the tail end. But he was somebody that every night I went to a Clipper game. I'm like, Ellen Brand's going to score 25 points tonight. There weren't a lot of guys in the league and like then, that. And then Philly does, think about what Philly does. He tears his Achilles. And Philly's yeah. like, we're still all in. We're still, here's all the money or almost all the money. Not quite all the money, but almost all the I think it was not quite all the money. We can throw at you. Yeah, you just suffered a torn Achilles. We're bringing you over. I'm actually reading Andre Iguodala's book right now. And Andre oh. loved Elton Brand. He loved he loved it. He got to play with like old Elton Brand in Philly. And he really gravitated toward Elton Brand. So he learned a lot about managing his money and just like just he talked black history with Elton, all sorts of stuff. But he talked about how I believe, if I'm getting all my details right, if I'm not, forgive me. Um, I believe Eddie Jordan was the coach in Philly for part of that. And they were trying to play the Princeton offense. And Andre talks about how Elton occasionally would be like, fuck this Princeton offense, man. I just got, I just got to get some numbers. I got to get some touches. I got to get some post touches. And Andre like had this weird, like he kind of didn't like it when Elton would break the offense. Cause Elton's like, this is not how I'm not a Princeton offensive guy. Just give me the ball. Dump me the ball. I'm going to score buckets. But he also kind of respected how Elton would just be like, Nope, it's my it's my time now. We're not running the Princeton offense. It's Elton. Right. He kind of respected it. I li- I really like this game. Great trade for the Clips. Uh, so one other thing, with the sh- what Chicago did this year, where they're in year three of the post MJ rebuilding project, which in the uh, MJ documentary that's coming on ESPN from our friend Jason Hare, it it's never truly been explained why the Bulls were like. Yeah, cool. We're done with this done. winning titles with Phil Jackson and Jordan and Pippen thing. Like it ends this year. Um, and I wrote a column for us probably three years ago when I was trying to figure out what team LeBron was going to go to in 2018. Uh, when it became clear, like around January, February, that he probably wasn't going back to Cleveland, but where was he going to go? He didn't have a team. And it was the same dilemma Jordan had that year. And I'm always going to think that's why he retired because they were blowing up the Bulls. He didn't want to play anywhere else there wasn't really a a situation for him other than like maybe the Knicks, the Knicks didn't have the cap space to sneak him in. He he wasn't going to go to the Lakers. He wasn't really, there was no other place for him to go. So he retired. And, uh, I think that was a little bit of the situation. LeBron was in 2018. He goes to the Lakers because it's Los Angeles. Great. I get to move there. Basically the 2019 season is going to suck, but maybe we'll make some moves after that. Um, so anyway, I, I never understood why they blew it up. I think there was a lot of organizational arrogance. We're in year three of that MJ blow up plan. And now they're blowing it up a second time. They're doing building around the two high schoolers. And when you think about how long this took, they made the playoffs in Oh five with that kind of fun team. First round, they, they were a little frisky, had some guys in there, but it was a six year run just to lose in six in round one. And then it craters again. They end up getting Derrick Rose and then they get rejuvenated. But it was really, they threw away a decade. It's too bad. It's hard. The NBA can be unforgiving, man. Once you're bad, if you don't get the right guy in the draft, if you don't get lucky a couple of times, like you can be bad for a long time. And the Bulls were bad for a long time. Then they were good for a long time. As much as Gar and Pax are getting hammered now and demoted now, like, they they had a decent run there for a while before the last few years 
kind of centered around the Butler trade where everything kind of went sour. I mean, they 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 had once they got Rose, that was a good team for a while. Yeah. And it seemed like if you were betting um when did Rose get hurt? Was that that was 2012 playoffs. Oh, was, I was going to say 11-12 season. Yeah. So we had Grantland, we launched Grantland June 2011, and we never did this column, but if we did, like who are the teams most likely to win the NBA title? If we had done that October two or December 2011, whenever the uh, lockout ended, I think Chicago would have been one of the top three picks. I think we were that, said Chicago, Oklahoma City, Miami, right? That's an injury that for anyone who was, that's, that's a sort of, uh, that's a, you remember where you were when that injury happened because it was like, it was a great, it was, they were the number one seed. It was shaping up to be Chicago and the LeBron heat like year after year after year in the playoffs. And you had the sense that like you, the bulls, like they just, they didn't fear Miami, like Noah and Taj Gibson, those dudes like love to duke it out with Miami. They hated LeBron. Like it had a chance to be a rivalry. And I think that's one of the things when people look back on LeBron's time in Miami is the East like Indiana sort of just slipped into this void in the East. And I think we're going to be debating for a long time. Like how good was that Pacers team really that good? Or were they the product of a conference that just didn't have another capital T team to, to challenge Miami? And like the bulls are supposed to be that team. And you had, even though it was an ACL and people recover pretty well from those. Now, I, even at that moment, given the way that Derek Rose played, it had this feel of like, Ooh, like things just change forever. I agree. It sometimes with an ACL, you go, oh, like Clay Thompson. I'm like, oh, he'll be back in a year. He'll be fine. With Rose, it was like taking one of the most carefully built $500,000 Italian race cars and just watching it crash into a wall and then have somebody tell you, yeah, the car should be fine. You're like, I don't know, man. That was a pretty bad. The way he played, the torque he put on the lower part of his body. It just seemed like, oh man, how is he going to come back from this mentally? And as we saw, it took how many years? Five? I mean, he Four? never he never got back to it. You know, I mean, he <laughs> never got back to that form ever. I mean, he was the MVP the year before. He never approached that that level. He's a he's a good player now in the NBA. He's, he's rebuilt himself into a good, useful NBA player. That's credit to him. Well, that 2012 playoffs, the Celtics end up creeping into the conference finals and coming very close to sneaking into the finals with they're on fumes of their fumes at this point, that team that they were like 500 for a three month stretch, I think in uh, 2012, the, uh, the other one, the, the other one that was kind of the missed opportunity team, uh, other than Chicago was Brooklyn because if I'm just looking at those four Miami years, I don't, I will never understand what happened to Darren Williams, but on paper, with the talent they had when they added KG and Pierce that year, that should have been an awesome team. And for whatever reason, Darren Williams was already done with his prime, even though he was the same age as Chris Paul. If you put like an actual 2010 Darren Williams, the guy from 2008, on that Nets team with all those pieces, I think that would have been a really tough team for uh, Miami to beat, but he just wasn't the same guy. I thought that team was going to be really good. Um and they just, like you said, just it just didn't work. I never, I, 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 I not, I'm not sure how much I believe that they were going to challenge Miami, but they had the potential to be really, really good. And yeah, the 2012 playoffs—that's the uncut gems playoffs. Now that's the uncut when they slog it out, Boston, Philly. 
And one of my everyone, you you just have these some images just stick with you from games and and like some people forget certain things. Like one of the things I'll always remember from that playoffs, game seven, Miami, Boston, Brandon Bass ends up being the guy the Celtics asked to guard LeBron down the stretch of that game and crunch time third and fourth quarter. And you just were like, they're out of ideas. They've they've they're this is the last idea that they've come up with. He had like a few possessions in the previous game where he looked pretty good. And they're like, oh, yeah, Brandon Bass, that's going to be how we're going to get through. It's like they're just out of ideas. Yeah, I remember Bosch making a couple massive shots. Just heartbreaker shots in the fourth quarter, too. But yeah. All right. So All right. the rest of this uh, top 10 goes Golden State, Memphis. And I had in that draft diary, Memphis takes Shane Battier. And Stern is a bullion. It's the it's the first time he's happy. It's a it's a four year senior from Duke. He's just so happy to have an adult in the draft. The Nets are seven, and they make the biggest trade of this draft, other than a, the old brand trade. It's a pretty crazy trade, actually. Um, when you really sit down and look at how much they traded for Eddie Griffin. So they're picking seventh. Houston has 13, 18, and twenty three. And the I'm Nets sorry, how are much, like how much the Nets got for Eddie Griffin? I misspoke. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Nets say we'll give you the Eddie Griffin pick, number seven, who's got a lot of value. Um, for the people who don't remember him, he's dead now, but he was this troubled guy from Seton Hall who'd been in a lot of stuff, but was really talented. Incredible and talent. So it's like as, a modern mo- and like a modern NBA talent, too. Right. Like a potential multiple O NBA guy if you could just keep him. In check, who would you compare him to? Do you remember? I don't really remember his game that much at this point. But I remember him being... An all-around scorer, tall guy. You know, I don't know if he was technically seven feet, but an all-around scorer. Just like a guy that you could... A guy who... A a big guy who had the potential to play inside and out and exploit mismatches just like across the board. Whoever that... Whoever comes to mind for that description. For some reason, I want to say Michael Porter. Is that fair? Like th- what we have in our that's head of how good Michael Porter could be? That That's interesting. That was kind of how I remember feeling about Eddie Griffin. I think he could post up a little more. So Houston says, we'll give you 13, 18, and 23 for seven. So you have three first-round picks just to move up six spots, which is about as big of a price as we've seen other than like the Chris Webber trade or something like that. The Nets say, sure. They have, uh, at this point, they have already made the Jason Kidd trade. They already have Kenny Martin. They already have Kerry Kittles. They end up taking Richard Jefferson 13th. So it's going great. With the 18th pick, Zach Randolph on the board, they take Jason Collins instead. And then with the 23rd pick, they take Brandon Armstrong from Pepperdine. Yeah, it didn't go well. And that's, that's one of those... Two for like one and a half for three. I mean, Jason Collins was a useful NBA player. It's not Zach Randolph. You can play that one no. game with a lot of guys, but like Jason Collins was a good NBA, a decent NBA player. From a talent standpoint, it had, it felt like Zach Randolph had fallen too far. And he was another guy who people had some head case questions about. Um, but they take Brandon Armstrong at 23. Gerald Wallace is 25. Sam Dallenbear is 26. Tony Parker is 28. Gilbert Arenas is 31. There's a world in which the Nets trade Eddie Griffin and build like a dynasty. Yeah. Because they could have, even if they had taken Richard Jefferson, Zach Randolph, Tony Parker, which is conceivable, um, that's a monster haul. So then the other plot here is the Celtics have 10, 10, 11, and 21. 
And if you're a Celtics fan, which I was at the time, I was still living in Boston. They had Paul Pierce. They had Antoine Walker. We got rid of Rick Pitino. Um, we, there's momentum. Kenny Anderson was whatever. Tony Batiste, whatever. They have role players, but you think like, man, if we nail this draft and it's a deep draft, um, we could really be set here. Unfortunately for the Celtics, it was a nine-player draft. They had the 10th pick. So we but, needed somebody. But, but. Somebody list. needed to do something dumb. And here come the Cleveland Cavs. They take Dasana Diop eighth. And everything falls into place. Joe Johnson falls to the Celtics at 10. The Kedrick Brown pick, number 11. You remember the story with this pick, right? Oh, yes. So they have a Denver pick that they can just roll over to 2002 and it's top five protected. Roll it over again. It becomes unprotected in 2003. The Nuggets are one of the worst franchises in the league. They have no real young anything yet. They do not have a pick in this draft because the Celtics are taking it. The Celtics just said, you keep that pick. We're going to roll it over. They're only getting the 11th pick. And then in 03, it's Carmelo Anthony, which is the pick the Celtics had gotten. The weirdest thing about this, not to get too Celtics deep divey, but they had all these luxury tax fears. And 50 games into this 2001-02 season, they trade Joe Johnson. Apparently, they gave Phoenix the pick. Joe Johnson or Kedrick Brown, you can have either. They pick Joe Johnson. The Celtics throw in a 2002 first-round pick and get Rodney Rogers and Tony Delk back for their I, playoff I, I'm run. I'm so excited that you brought up that trade because I remember at the time, now this is the year the Celtics make the conference finals and lose to the Nets. I remember at the time, 25-year-old, 24-year-old me, then you got Tony Delk and Rodney Rogers, as you said. Tony Delk was 28. And like, okay, Rodney Rogers is like a very intriguing, multifaceted big man who could shoot threes and do some stuff. I remember at the time being like, that is one of the most aggressive win now trades I can yeah. remember. Given that like that Celtics team wasn't that good. Like that wasn't a team that you would be like, oh, they're they're Rodney Rogers away from being a championship contender. It was that was a team being like, the East stinks. We're not very good. Let's get freaking crazy. And that trade in retrospect, like Delk and Rogers had some moments for the Celtics in that very strange playoff run that they had. But like, that is a crazy trade. That's a crazy trade. Chris Wallace. Um, I remember liking the trade at the time, um, but thinking they paid a heavy price with Joe Johnson and never for a million but, years understanding why they also had to throw in the first round pick. You were probably so this is probably why they did it because they're so starved for that at that point from for like post bird anything like po just give us a playoff run of any kind. Yeah, we'll lose in the conference finals, but it'll be worth it because it'll just be so fun. Like teams talk themselves into that. And the Patriots had just won the Super Bowl. Did they cheat and in that one or did they win that? No, one stop it. Stop it. <laughs> I, I don't uh, even know what I'm. I don't even there know. There's a I'm lot of momentum about. of like the Celtics are good. The Celtics are fun. If we get these other two pieces, maybe we'll win. The problem is they traded for two bench guys. And you're right. This is a trade that if it happened now, the internet would riot. It would be like, Joe Johnson's good. You're giving him for you're giving up on Joe Johnson after 50 games for like a seventh man and an eighth man. What are you guys doing? Like nowadays they would never do that. You'd probably be able to get both of those guys for the 2002 first round pick. And yet, and, and Joe yet. Forte. And yet, there are Celtics fans, maybe you are one of them, who will whisper very quietly, 
you know, we actually kind of played the Lakers tough that year. If we if we had made the finals, like you never know. You never know. I'm like, yeah, I know. Shaq would have smashed your entire team into smithereens in four games, but you still hear it. Man, if we had just gone by the Nets, you never know. We gave those Lakers teams trouble. In the defense of those Celtics fans <laughs> who think that, which include myself and my dad, <laughs> we played the Lakers awesome that year. Paul Pierce was a problem for them. We we won in LA. I, I wanted to play him. I remember thinking if we could just get by the Nets, we can give this Lakers team a run. <laughs> Uh, it would have been that 0-2 Lakers team that was worn out from that King series too. Who knows? Paul Pierce gets hot. Uh, okay, so we had that subplot. So Celts have 10, 11, and 21 and a chance to really, really, really lay the groundwork. There's a ton of rumors in Boston at the time they're going to take Tony Parker at number 21. He came on my podcast, I think in 2013, and I had always heard they're going to take him. So I, I asked him, and you can find this clip. I think it's on YouTube. How close was it? He said they gave him the hat. He still doesn't totally know what happened from when they gave him the Celtics hat. You're going to get called up to the stage to all of a sudden the Celtics took Joe Forte. There's been a lot of blame passing that's gone around. Chris Wallace almost immediately was like, that was Red Arback's favorite player in the draft. Joe Forte was at the Red Arback camp. Um, I still feel like Red Arbeck was an 80-year-old man at that point. Why are you listening to him on the 21st pick? Like, do do what's best for your team. The Parker what-if of this, because there's so many different things that play out. He falls to 27. The Spurs end up winning how many more titles because he falls to 27? Could you... I, He's I a think finals Duncan, MVP. He's a, Tony Parker is the 2007 finals MVP. Well, the thing is, I think Duncan the over-under is probably three. For titles he just should win because he was Tim Duncan. I think I think Parker adds two. Could be. I think that pick adds at least two titles. Because 2014 it also... 14 would be one. Yeah. And then I would say maybe 05 or 07 one of those. He swings one of them. So so that happens. So those were the, uh, the big subplots. Um, so I have a, a scrap rating crapshoot rating for every draft. Okay. In retrospect, what a crap, what, a, what kind of a crapshoot was on a scale of one to 10? I gave this a 7.5. Seems low. From a redraft standpoint. Yeah. It's, it's, it's because, um, I mean, the, the 2000 draft is infinity and the 1998 <laughs> draft is a 10. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a hard grader from a comedy standpoint. Some great ones here. Uh, this is a draft telecast where they use Rick Patino as a TNT guest analyst. You love it. Not sure why they did that. He was the same guy who traded Vitaly Patapico for an unprotected lottery pick. But um, the Bulls took Eddie Curry at number four. Rick Patino congratulated Jerry Clark Krause on a successful bluff. And I said that, and I said in the draft, all right, that's the kiss of death. When Patino you compliments did, uh, you your front that. office yeah, move. Your Patino animus was very fresh and raw. In oh, that draft it's, diary. It's, it's fresh and raw in 2020, my friend. So that that's the moment <laughs> when Eddie Careers turned around. Uh, at number 26, Sam Dallenbear got selected by the Sixers, came out of the stands. Yep. To my knowledge, the first time this ever happened. Nobody I was ever say, I believe, is that done the first it. time? Yeah. So it's amazing, like security didn't take him out, thinking he was like some crazed fan, but it was actually Sam, Sam Dall Dallenbear. Spo spoiler, Sam Dallenbear is in my uh, redraft lottery. Oh, Sam good. Dallenbear. I hope so. He should Sam be. Sam Dallenbear's a lottery pick for me. And then uh, 
later in the draft, Patino called Tony Parker, Troy Parker multiple times. And then when, when Parker actually got taken in the 27 pick, they had Barkley on this draft. And he said, I don't know that much about him, but they got him in the first round. So he must be a good player. This is when networks just did not care who was doing the draft. It's like, you're famous. Hubie Brown is in this draft for some reason. Um, okay. Well, the lore, so, the lore of that Tony Parker pick, the lore on one end is definitely Red Arbeck is blamed for it. Boston not picking Tony Parker. And the lore on the other end is that was the, that was the time the young Sam Presti was like, I'm staking my claim. This is the guy we should take in San Antonio. Wow. I was like, that's the young, that the legend, I, you know, Sam, I don't know that he's ever talked publicly about it. And if he did, I'm sure he would deflect credit to everyone else. But the story that has been told in the media and elsewhere is that that's, that's young Presti was the guy who like brought Tony Parker in for a second workout. Cause he like bombed the first one pop didn't like him. It's like this, I'm staking my reputation. This is a good player. Let's take him. Would you put that above or below Russell Westbrook in 2008, which was a huge reach when they did that? Yeah, there were people that wanted to take Brooke Lopez instead. Um, I mean, anytime you're in the, well, it, it works. It's it 28 makes it seem more impressive, like last pick of the first round. But also by then, it's sort of like your risk is a little bit lower because if you blow the 28th pick, no one ever remembers that. If you blow the fourth pick and it's a reach, people really remember that. I thought the Westbrook pick was really ballsy. Rousseau and I talked about when we did the 2000 draft. I loved Westbrook in college. Never in a million years thought he was a top four pick. He just seemed like a little bit of a project as a guard. It was unclear what position he was. He was think- clearly something, but he, I mean, they took ahead of Steph Curry and Brooke Lopez and people that we knew were going to be good pros. Yeah, so. I think I think uh, I think I'm buying into your argument that the Westbrook pick is ballsier just because of where it took place in the draft. I'm, I'm going to not I'm Steph gonna- Curry. Kevin, like no, Kevin Love, Steph, I meant. Steph Curry's yeah. in, the, is, in Kevin Love. In my, He's in the next is, one. Is, Steph Curry's in my favorite uh, draft. Um, yeah, we're doing that for your pod. A uh, couple, couple Zachs from Zach Cram, the Ringer's own. He said the 2001 draft, six All NBA players. 96 is the only draft in the lottery era with more. Seven. Wow. Wow. Okay. The average player from the 2001 draft tallied 26.1 career win shares, the fourth most in the latter era behind 96, 03, and 99. Okay. Kwame Brown averaged 6.6 career points, third worst for any number one pick since the invention of the shot clock, trailing only, can you guess? Oloa Candy. Nope. He, he put up buckets. He was like double figures for his career. Yeah, you're right. No, there's one easier one. How am I blanking on it? I'll give you a hint. Whoa! That's the hint? Anthony Bennett? Oh, wow. See, I was I was trying to rack my brain further back than that. Yeah, Anthony Bennett. That's a that's so uh, the other one you won't get. LaRue Martin, the guy LaRue Portland Martin. took in yeah, 1970. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, that's a famous one. Anthony Bennett. Yeah, that's a bad one. That's a crazy draft, too. When you guys get to that one, that's a fun draft. Zach says, uh, Gilbert Arenas ranks 10th in total career value, but in peak value, if you look at their best five seasons, he ranks second from this draft. That's the biggest difference for any player in any draft in the latter era. Well, I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you right now, he's going high on the Zach Lowe uh, draft. Oh, there you go. And then our top undrafted players from this year, Mo Evans, the immortal Jamario Moon. I like Jamario Moon. And Carlos Arroyo, who had like a cup of coffee of seeming really good there for a while and then became 
Good international uh, player. 11th man. But I remember, remember that one year where it was like, Carlos Arroyo kind of looks like John Stockton. Great FIBA player, too. Yeah. Okay. And then that's it. All right. We're doing the redraft. Do you want the first pick or the second pick? Go and snake draft. Oh, boy. I'm um, going to give you the first pick. You're the guest. Okay. You're just giving it to me. Mm-hmm. Do I, it's almost any... like when David Stern gave the Knicks the number one pick in 1985 and pretended he was pulling it out of a glass. Uh, I think this is an easy one. Um, Pau Gasol is the first pick in the draft for me. Make the case. Do I? I mean, do I have to? It's Pau Gasol. Yeah. That's my that's my case. I mean, the only competition is Tony Parker. Um, to me, the only competition is Tony Parker. It's Pau and Tony and then it's everybody else. I assume you will be picking Tony Parker now. And I just think size all-around skill. I Powell was a good defender at his peak, an underrated defender at his peak. His passing, his ability to blend in any offense, yes. It was funny. When we do these exercises, I'm kind of drafting like halfway for what the NBA was like then and halfway for what the NBA is like now. So yeah, Powell, Powell's game, I think, is less fitted to 2020 NBA than like Tony Parker's game, although Tony Parker never became an off-the-dribble three-point shooter. Um, I just think Powell was better. I think peak Powell was better than peak Tony Parker, period. That's it. That's my case. They, they made the same number of all-star teams. Statistically, I mean, I, you know, they, Powell had a few more points, whatever. I just, Powell, I just think Powell's better. Powell comes in as a rookie, puts up 17.6 points, nine rebounds, two blocks a game, 36.7 minutes a game. And Joe House is just going insane in Washington <laughs> that they took Kwame Brown. He's going to these Wizards games and going, Kwame Brown looks like he needed like four more years in college. He needed to go to college and spend all four years there before something's going to happen. Powell is good immediately. And from 2002 to 2016, which is 15 years and 1,055 games, he played 35 minutes a game. He averaged an 18 and a nine and a half. And almost two blocks. Six-time really All-Star, same, same as Parker. So I went back and forth really, really hard on this. And I gave, Parker was number one on my board. Wow. I like it. I mean, look, it's, it, you, can make, you can make the argument. Peak Tony Parker was, a, was a, an all-NBA level player. I mean, Peak Tony Parker was a great, great player. Here's my case. And this is just, you know me, I like to hold grudges and, t- and, and I... And slights. I never liked how Powell ended the Memphis thing. It really bothered me. I don't think he gets enough of a penalty for it in the historical thing. I think he was an incredible player. I really liked him. I thought he was the 2010 Finals MVP. He never would have won it, but I thought he was the best player in that series. I thought he was absolutely immense in Game Seven, which was on recently. 19 points, uh, 18 rebounds. It's the most important game. It's the most important game of Pau Gasol's career in the NBA. That was that game. I sat behind the basket that they were scoring on in the second half for Game Seven because I was doing like a live chat ESPN thing, which I, I wish I hadn't done. I wish I had written about that series instead of done the live chat thing. But Gasol was a fucking man in that game. He really was, and he's going against. There's no Kendrick Perkins because Perkins is hurt. He's going against KG, who's 85% of KG at that point, maybe 83. He's going against a pretty spirited Rashid Wallace, who just burned out laboring, 35 minutes. Laboring but spirited, both at the same right. time. First half spirited, second half um, needs like a lung transfusion. 
and and uh, there's some was there some big baby that year? There's one other big guy they had, but you know, a, a competitive Celtics team. Sheldon Williams Angus. made some cameos in that series. Oh my god, I did th- my there's nightmare. A famous, there's a famous Sheldon Williams throwing away inbounds pass at the end of the half. It might have actually been Game Seven, where everyone where everyone agreed in the moment, like get sh- like Sheldon Williams needs to leave. He can't play again. Just get out of the premises. Like he just needs to leave. <laughs> I like in in my Celtics lifetime, that's only happened a few times in a playoff game. Because I remember one time Fred Roberts in the '88 Detroit series. And I think I went to the game. It was game five. It was when the Pistons finally flipped it. Um, and somebody fouls out. It was like Mikhail fouls out. And Fred Roberts at that point, everyone's just done with him. But somebody has to come in. And there's like a murmuring of, of you could just 20,000 people going, man, I hope he doesn't put in Fred Roberts. And then Fred Roberts stands up on the bench <laughs> to go in. And the crowd goes, no! Like, <laughs> you could honestly hear it. But the Sheldon Williams thing was the same thing. I think he was like minus eight in two minutes in game seven. It was some crazy stat. So anyway, I have a lot of respect for Powell. I actually thought he was underrated um, both on those Lakers teams and just as a pro. I didn't like the Memphis thing. And so it it was that little. I felt like it was like dead even between him and Parker. It's funny. By coincidence, I just on Saturday did one of those NBA Instagram live things with Powell. and I, I taught, so I prepared by talking to some people that know Powell and we were talking about Memphis and he was like super, super frustrated in Memphis, like the losing, they just weren't going anywhere. They won zero playoff games. They got swept every year in the playoffs. He was there. But when he got traded, somebody told me he was like actually unhappy. Like he, his first reaction about going to the Lakers is that he was upset and unhappy and like had kind of like, like, did I, did I play this right? And then very quickly right. he realized, oh, I'm on an awesome team. And then Pow Pow talked about why he felt that way. But it's interesting that we remember it as this as as this sort of frustrated guy trying to push his way out of town. And then when it happens, his first reaction is sadness more than elation. Well, and I think there was a fear at that point of playing with Kobe, which cannot be understated. You know, he's he had had those three straight years, and he was a difficult teammate. And I'm sure he was like, oh shit. Now it's like, I got my wish. I'm on a different team, but now the stakes are going to be completely different. He fit in immediately with that team, though. People told uh, me, someone on that team told me no one ever, ever before or since picked up the triangle offense faster than Powell. It was just instant. Like, he got it. He didn't need to be told anything. He understood it immediately. I don't know what the right pick is with this. So, So, like, the 07 Grizzlies... They had Mike Miller, who was 18 and a half a game, 41% from three. Like, probably his best year that he had. Kill they had a young Mike Rudy Miller. Gay. They had Damon Stoudemire and Chucky Atkins. They had Hakeem Warwick, little Dante Jones, some late Coretti Jones. Like, wasn't a bad team. And yet, they went 22 and 60. And I, I do feel like, I just don't think Powell is a number one guy. Now, I'm not sure Tony Parker was either, but I, the reason I, I had Parker slightly higher on my board was he was he was such an unstoppable offensive guy for so long. Um, and, like, weirdly, you look back at the 13 finals, which we both covered, and there's that moment in game six when he's hurt. He's playing with, like, he had a bad knee or a bad foot. I can't remember. And he just takes over with three minutes left. He's playing against one of the best teams we've had in the last 25 years. And he takes over the game. 
And it seems like they're going to win because of all the stuff he's doing. I never felt like Pow was as good as Tony was in that kind of stretch or, or even Tony in 2014, Tony in the 07 finals. Tony's, Tony's kind of offensive apex was just, I felt a tad higher, but I honestly, I feel like this is one A, one B, and I don't feel I like think, there's I a wrong I think it's close. Tony was, Tony was a 20-point scorer twice in his career. Um, the jump shot, the long, the three never really came, but he did. He had some monster playoff moments, and in game one of that series in 2013, he hit the jumper to ice the game. I mean, he was a monster that year. I don't, you know, I just think Pat was better. They both made all NBA four times. It's it's, but it's an argument. So it's a it's a it's a tough argument. It's a great one, Tony. 2009, 22 and seven, 51% shooting. One of the things I liked about him was that he could have an impact and didn't need to have a high usage rate. This was not like a Russell Westbrook situation. This was like, he didn't need the ball that much. When you gave it to him, he could score. His teammates seemed to like him. I think other teams really hated playing him. You know, that how many guys can you remember being like, oh man, they, they completely throttled Tony Parker. Like it didn't feel, it always felt like he could get wherever he could go. I remember on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, somebody had, a minute long clip clip of uh, Tony Parker's spin moves, the three sixty driving three sixties he used to wow. do. Peak Tony he, Parker he was would, breathtaking. Yeah, he would have stretches where, despite not having the sort of vertical athleticism or explosiveness of like a Westbrook, he would have stretches where you would think, "How does anyone keep this guy away from the rim? Like, how is it? But you right. can't you you can't keep him away from the basket, which is pretty remarkable considering he's not that big or like strong or athletic a dude." I mean, and could finish fast. at the rim too. Yeah. So from an all NBA standpoint, both of these guys made it, right? Uh four time all NBA, both of them. That's something. Yeah. You and I both value the all NBAs. Because that's basically it's an announcement you were either one of the best 10 or 15 guys in the league. It's really the only document we have that if you're doing arguments, it matters. All right. You have the third pick. Um, so if we had done this draft correctly, or if the, the teams in the moment had done it correctly, Washington would have had Pau Gasol and then we would have Tony Parker to the Clippers. I'm not sure that would have been great for him. The third pick seems pretty obvious to me, but I, I'm interested to see what you do here. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to reach a little bit because he didn't have the best career, um, of, of, uh, all of these people that are candidates for this pick. Um, but I'm going with the Zach Cram peak value method and I'm picking Gilbert Arenas. Because I know that Gilbert Arenas, and in his prime, now maybe I can't prevent the knee injuries. I don't know. I can maybe prevent some of the uh, other unpleasantness that derailed his career in Washington. Yeah. Um, but I know, and if I'm drafting, like I said, halfway for then, halfway for now, I know I can plug Pete Gilbert Arenas into an NBA offense, and he can run 50 pick and rolls a game, make off the dribble threes, and be a guy that is going to make my team on offense at least, really, really good. And so I'm drafting for peak value. I'm picking Gilbert Arenas third. I remember writing some column when he was on the Warriors and kind of not dismissing him, but just not giving him credit for being really an asset yet and getting a couple impassioned emails. Back when people sent civil emails instead of just being like, you fucking suck, Zach. Fuck you. A good time. Uh, this is the era of like, hey, I'm going to send one of my favorite writers a thoughtful email that he might have gotten this one wrong. And I got all these emails from the Warriors fans saying, 
hey, you should watch Gilbert. Like Gilbert's coming on in a real way. Like something's happening here. And at that point, the Warriors sucked. I would, there was really no reason to watch them on League Pass unless I was like going to the game or there on TNT or something. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll give Gilbert a whirl. And I was like, oh, what's this? And then that was the year he was going to be, he was going to be a restricted free agent. Remember? They and changed, they changed the rules because of his restricted free agency. There is now the Gilbert Arenas rule. Right. So Washington comes in, they come flying in off the top rope and they grab Gilbert and house is like, what's going on? I'm like, house, I've been, I watched this guy a couple of times. This guy is like, this is an amazing move for you. You might've gotten whatever, but. He was actually turned into a superstar. Like there is a, probably a two-year stretch there where he is on the level of T-Mac and all these guys. And what's interesting is I actually think Pete Gilbert was a higher level than any season Vince Carter had except for that one awesome Ooh. 2001 season. I Honestly, like if you're just talking about who did more offensively, you'd well, probably like Pete, say Gilbert. Gilbert just brought more to the table. Pete Gilbert was 29 and 6 on like eight threes or seven threes a game, which in 2006, 2007, there weren't many people shooting seven or eight threes a game. Um, well, look at that, look at his 2006 season and tell me the two things that jump out. Seven threes a game, seven attempted threes a game, 37% and 10 free throws. Um, 10 and, free throws a game. Yeah. So he's basically... He's hardened. He's, ja like he's basically hardened. James Harden in 2006, yeah. but there's no possessions back then. People remember how slow it was back then? 29 and six. And like I said, like the, the hardest thing to find in the NBA is a legitimate offensive fulcrum who can be the number one guy every possession on an above average offense. So I, was he your pick for three if you had had three? Um, you have the four. It was, either, the it was either him or Joe Johnson. Gilbert for three years from 05 to 07 was 28 and six. You're talking going, three solid I'm going years. Peak value. And I'm just, I'm imagining that my team has a healthy team culture. We're going to nurture all, we're going to make all the right decisions off the floor, on the floor. We're going to, we're going to, we're not going to be, we're not going to be the jailblazers. We're going to, we're going to be not who's relevant for one of the picks that's coming up. Uh, we're going to have a good culture. I'm going to get the best Gilbert Arenas for a decent amount of time. Oh, six. That series against Cleveland, that was. Just kind of a straight, that was a weird, of really fun playoffs. And that was a fun series. Six games. He plays 47.3 minutes a game. Ridiculous. In the six playoff games. 34 points a game. Led the, uh, led the playoffs that year, but went toe to toe with, uh, with LeBron. LeBron. And one of, one of the things I liked about him and where I think, you know, he was all NBA third team, third team, second team for three straight years. Vince was Vince doesn't have anything like that three year stretch. One of the things I liked about him is he really honestly believed he was better than LeBron James in that playoff series. Those Wizards teams were just so they wanted all of it. They wanted yeah, they all did. of LeBron. They wanted everything. Bring everything on. Um, I think that I don't think that's the wrong pick because you you at least know you're getting four top 15 seasons of a guy. I thought uh, I had Joe Johnson kind of 3A, 3B with Gilbert. Um, a couple of things with Joe. He he made seven all-star teams, which I was shocked by. He, so he only he, made he, one third team on NBA. His name 
is is almost seven time All Star Joe Johnson. I mean, that's almost like how people refer to him for that reason because people it's just that to up see all like, the All Stars wow. next to each other. I'm like, how did he make this many All Star teams? Uh, the Joe Johnson, first... the Joe Johnson Hall of Fame debate is going to be frisky. It's going to be there's going to be people who are like Joe Johnson, and then they're going to be like, well, twenty thousand points, seven All Star games, whatever, whatever it is. There's. It's going to be like if Joe, you you have to let in Joe Johnson and Tom Chambers if you're letting in Joe Johnson. Tom Chambers then has to get in, I think. But um, his first five Hawk seasons, 22-5 and 6. I was shocked by his stats on the 05 Suns, a team that I really loved watching. He, uh, he was 47% from three that year, taking like five a game. And when he gets hurt, um, that to me, that's the big, what if with Joe Johnson and the case for him for being the third pick in this draft is if he just stays with Steve Nash, just how about this? Stay with the best point guard and one of the best teammates we've had in the last 30 years on a style that's uniquely suited to all the things you're good at. Just stay there, stay there and be in contention. He goes to Atlanta and it's just like, or pay or pay right. him if blame the Suns, pay him. Keep him. Do whatever it takes to keep him. Because it is remarkable that, you know, the Celtics trade him as a rookie in that deal we talked about earlier. And then the Suns, when he's still very young, are like, yeah, or, you know, they just can't work it out. And so he ends up on this sort of like this NBA backwater at the time. And the Hawks get really good. That Hawks team, like everyone sort of looks at them as this poster team for like upper crust mediocrity. Like you don't you don't want to be the Joe Johnson Hawks getting out in the second round all the time, but like that was a good team. There was like there was a good NBA team, and he was well. The key, the, the other key thing with Joe it. Johnson, the contract kind of overwhelmed the That's second right. half of his career. That's he true. made so much money, and it was so ridiculous that he just became overrated. And he wasn't over. If you're just looking at him based on what do I want from the two guard position, oh, here's a guy who can score twenty to twenty two points a game, and he'll make four out of every ten threes. Like. Well, that's, that's good. what makes that's what makes the next five or six picks interesting is that drafting from the perspective of 2020, you have Joe Johnson, Richard Jefferson, Shane Battier, Jason Richardson, wings who like now you'd be like, yeah, Joe Johnson can play two, three, four. Like they all shoot threes. They're multi-positional. And then you have like you have some guys who are more old school, like Zebo or Tyson Chandler. Like how do you but had really great careers. So how do I'm curious to see how we value those sort of attributes. The Joe Johnson thing with the Celtics is tough because you just look like him and if him and Paul Pierce together, it's not exactly the same, but it's it's reminiscent of the Tatum Brown combo they have now where every team in the league would be like, oh, I'd love to have two wing guys like that. I would just build around those guys for 10 years. And you look back retroactively and you go, oh, they had Paul Pierce and Joe Johnson and they just could have had that for 12 years. That seems like they should want to do that. And he was gone after 50. Yeah, I had Joe Johnson fourth on my board after Arena. So we have the same top four guys in a different order, but I had Joe Johnson fourth. All right. So you're up uh you're up I with got the, the fifth, fifth pick. pick. Uh I I went back and forth a lot of times on this for the reasons I just talked about about position and versatility and all that. But in the end, I just thought the raw talent of Zach Randolph couldn't be denied at this pick. And even though He's not sexy in the positional versatility shooting threes. He actually got off to quite a slow start in his career uh, in Portland. But uh, I just think at some point you just have to say, 
he's the best guy of these guys. He's the most talented guy. And I'll find a way either to play inside out around him or maybe I'll coax him into shooting threes way earlier in his career than he had. He didn't really shoot threes until the last couple of years of his career. Probably could have been a decent three-point shooter if teams had actually directed his game that way. And I will have a good, healthy culture on my team for young Zach Randolph. There is not going to be jailblazer shenanigans going on. So I debated RJ. I debated Battier as sort of like all Shane Battier does is win, you know. Um, I debated a couple other guys, but I just went I, at some point eight straight years averaging 18 points a game. Just a problem. Zach Randolph was a problem. And so I went Zebo. I had him there as well. 2010 guy for from 2004 through 2011. The thing. So it's funny. He got he's at Portland, gets traded. Isaiah trades for him. Everybody's like, well, that's the dumbest thing ever. You're going to play Isaiah and Eddie. You're going to play Eddie Curry and Zach Randolph together. And Isaiah was doing that whole, the rest of the league's getting faster and has more shooting. I'm going to zig the other way. I'm going to get bigger. And it was a disaster I'm, immediately. I'm going bully ball. And it was like, wow. They, and all like the relatively smart basketball people are like, you can't play those guys together. That'll never work. Defensively, you're going to get destroyed. Like, please don't do that. He tried I it. I went back and read old clips and it was, it was a trip to see New York Times era Howard Beck after 20 games writing columns like, yeah, scouts around the league are like one of these guys has to come off the bench because it's not working out with Eddie Curry and Zach Randolph and like David Lee is getting lost in the shuffle. It's a disaster. Oof. So he gets traded to the Clippers. I had season tickets. That was the year I almost gave up my season tickets after this season. I have a running diary of going to a game where it ends with they're down two and Zach Randolph airballs a 29 footer coming out of a timeout to lose the game. And at that point there was, if Zach Randolph stock was like a penny, I would have not wanted Zach Randolph stock. I was just like, this guy's a loser. He puts up empty calorie stats on bad teams and that's where I'm landing. But you look at that Memphis, he goes to that's Memphis. That's how Memphis got him. Memphis got him, and it's just it was straight salary dump. Like, please take Zach Randolph. There were Quentin Richardson was in that deal. There was like other stuff, but Memphis got him for essentially free. Right. They get him. But I think that 2011 season, he's 20 and 12, and then goes into the playoffs. And this is one of the lost great playoff upsets. Cause we, the Spurs now from 11 through 14, there's this second Spurs run that's happening. And in 11, they get just derailed by this crazy Memphis team. That's a terrible matchup for them for whatever reason. I think they easily could have made the finals that year. 2012, they're about to make the finals and OKC taps into this unbelievable potential. They, they end up not making it. 2013, they're up five with 28 seconds left, blow it. And then 2014, they finally win. But Man, if you look back at that Spurs run, the over-under for titles is easily two. It might even be two and a half, considering what else happened in the league at that point. And this 2011, it was fucking bonkers. Memphis not only upset them, it was legitimate. It was like if those teams played 20 times, I think Memphis wins like 14 or 15. It, just everything about it was a bad matchup. But... Uh, Ginobili was injured in, I believe, the last game of the regular season that year. He hurt his arm against Phoenix, I want to say. Missed the first game of that series. And and But what people don't remember as much is the Spurs were coming off a first-round loss in 09, getting drilled off the floor by the Suns in the second round in 2010. 
Then they win 61 games and it's this great feel-good story and they lose in the first round. Yeah, Ginobili's injured. There's like a, you know, like some extenuating circumstances. But that series, after those two previous playoff series, that was a time when people were like, maybe that's it. Like that for losing a 1-8 series, it was like people didn't see the 12, 13, 14 run coming after that. So I don't look at that necessarily as like one continuous run. I look at 2012, particularly when they got Diao, as the start of sort of a new identity of what the Spurs were going to be. And you could see sprinkling, you could see, you could see it coming in 2010, 2011. But when they lost that series, that was when people most started loudly saying, maybe it's just over. Like maybe their, their run as a, a championship contender is over. And that turned well, out they to be also, obviously wrong. They had Kawhi that summer too. Uh, the Kawhi draft is an, is an all, it's an all timer. It's an absolute all timer. I still think there's a world where the Spurs make the finals in 11. Because then the other thing that happened was, remember they were talking about, do we trade Tony Parker? Oh, yeah. it seemed like Tony Parker might be on the table. They end up trading George Hill instead. But there was a whole case for it. Well, they just lost in the first round again. They got shaken up. Maybe they maybe Parker has the most value. He's in his prime. And they flipped George Hill for Kawhi. The rest is history. That series was also the Marcus All breakout series. 14 yeah. and 12 against the Spurs in that series. And I, and then just classic Tony Allen, trick or treat Tony oh. kind of Ooh. evolved into the uh, the full fledged Tony. All right, so I you had got the six the, pick. You got the six pick, and now it gets really interesting. I think so. We went Pau Gasol, Tony Parker, Gilbert Arenas, Joe Johnson, Zach Randolph. I am taking Tyson Chandler with the six pick. Ooh, and, and here's my case. I think his career, if you played it 20 times, this is probably one of the worst versions of it. He goes to that weird Chicago team. Um, nothing goes right. Just, you know, hurts his back. That's a huge setback. Um, gets traded to New Orleans. He's with Chris Paul. Great. This is this is going to be awesome. Has a couple good New Orleans years for them. In 08, he was almost tw- he was 12 and 12 in the regular season. Uh 62% shooting. And then at some point he ends up on he, he ends up on Charlotte. Do you remember why he ended up on Charlotte? Do we have a record of that? Did he sign with them? Uh I'm I looking at transactions. Eric oh, he Gampier got traded involved. Traded uh, traded straight up for Mecca Okafor. Oh, Mecca Okafor, that's right. Yeah. Ends up on Charlotte. But then if you remember, there's this unbelievable fork in the road moment with him where OKC trades for him. Yeah. And then vetoes the trade because of a physical. And he almost ends up on this team with Ibaka, Durant, and Westbrook as the Kendrick Perkins piece. They would have kept Jeff Green or trade him for somewhere else. So there's a couple forks in the road there where I just feel like, man, in a different situation, he's better. I also think as like a screen and roll guy in 2020, if you take mid-2000s Tyson Chandler, I think uh, something happens there. Two other cases for him. He's third-team All-NBA in 2012 for the Knicks. And then in the in the Dallas series, even though the stats don't really measure the full impact, he's one of the reasons they won that Dallas, the uh, Miami Finals with uh, the defense of him and Marion and just the way they were able to just continue he was, to build a wall. He was insanely good in those finals defensively. Yeah. Insanely good. And he won Defensive Player of the Year once for the Knicks. Um, probably in that same all season. So he's basically, he's basically a 10 and 10 from the 2003 season 
all the way through 2017. He's 11 and 12 for those uh, 15 years. And I just, I like the longevity. And I do think that, it, and he's also a great teammate, beloved teammate by all accounts, right? Did you ever hear, not a lot of bad Tyson Chandler stuff out there. I always felt no. like his teammates liked him. Phoenix had, was probably a little rough. Phoenix was rough. Um, I, you know, Dallas round two, he had a he had moments in Dallas round two for the 2014-15 Mavs. I, I ended up he's, taking he's basically at a different point in his career at that point. Yeah. Anyway, I I ended ahead. up taking him much lower than you, not much lower, but a few spots lower than you did. Because really? I think you nailed I think you nailed it right the first thing you said. If you play out his career, this is one of the worst versions of it. Like he wasn't good in Chicago. It, like if you boil down Tyson Chandler's career, the highs were really high. Like he's an NBA champion. He's a defensive player there. He's a crit. He's the keystone of an NBA championship defense. But his game never changed at all, right? Like this, if you have Tyson Chandler, this is how you have to play on offense. He just has to screen and roll. That's it. You can't play any other style. He can't do anything else. And but he did that great. And you're really getting like, if you boil it down, he, he had five good seasons, maybe six. The two New Orleans seasons with CP and then Dallas Knicks Knicks. And after that, the decline kind of came fast. And given his his one dimensionality on offense and his relatively maybe abbreviated peak, I had him a little bit lower, but I love Tyson Chandler. So I I, you know, I I don't feel strongly about my six, seven, eight, nine order, but I did I had him lower than you did. One thing I one thing with Chandler I forgot to mention. I think if he had a really good point guard, it's a little like DeAndre Jordan and and Marcus Camby. There's certain guys that it's like if if you if they're just the recipient of somebody else's brilliance, they actually are going to even be much better. And the stuff I thought he was great on those New Orleans teams, but well, he's playing with Chris if Paul. You're a lot, if you're a lob catcher and you're playing at that time with the best lob thrower in the NBA, and David West is a stretch four, and Stojakovic is involved, like you're just going to be rolling into open space. And you're going to thrive. And the same thing with Mavs, like smart offense, Dirk at the four, like you're going to be rolling into open space. Well, think about him on as if you took 2008 Chandler and put him on that 2020 Lakers team in the Dwight Howard JaVale spot. That's like the ultimate situation for him. Anyway. All right. You're up. Seven pick. Uh, I went. Now you get to since you've taken Tyson Chandler off the board. Now you get the three wings who I have all right next to each other and Richard Jefferson, Shane Battier, and Jason Richardson. Yep. I flirted with taking Battier here because of just how long he was like a, an elite stopper on defense and one of sort of the, not original, but one of the like version 2.0 of 3 and D guys. Um, but I just, I, I went with Richard Jefferson in this spot because I just Oh, wow. Thought, I just thought... I had- <laughs> I just thought he's he's uh 20 point scorer three times in his career, seven straight years, 15 plus. Feel like decent defender that I could have got to defend at an elite level if in like multi-positional, no all-star teams. None of these guys ever made any all-star teams. Um, but I, I just thought upside, I'm taking RJ as a two-way player who can create off the dribble and run and transition, maybe post up the occasional mismatch, can do way more on offense than Shane Battier can do was a good three-point shooter. So I went upside of Richard Jefferson. Um, plus, the, the, the plus you of, get old. You get old, Richard Jefferson. You get 2016 finals KG veteran who could actually play in a game seven, Richard Jefferson. The, but the 
the de- like from age 29 to that finals was rough for Richard. Like the, when the decline happened, it came fast. Like Spurs era Richard Jefferson, Warriors era Richard Jeff. Like it wasn't it wasn't great for a while. So I went, but I went RJ in this spot at seven. Beloved teammate too. I I thought the I had Jason Richardson the highest of those three. I'm gonna make. The I had case. I had him the lo- I had him the lowest. Interesting. Of those three. I'll be interested. Maybe we should do a Twitter vote. Who would you, in the redraft, we could put those three guys? Because I, I had the same thing. I had those three guys together. I was trying to figure it out. Here is the case for uh, Richardson. So you take Richardson eight then in this, yeah. in this mock draft. I'm taking okay. him eight. Um, 07 Warriors. Had some monster games. He, he had some monster games in the We Believe run. Electric team in the uh, playoffs, 11 playoff games, 39 minutes a game. He was 19 and seven. Took seven and a half threes a game in the 07 playoffs. So I felt like if you're extending him forward into how we play basketball now, it'd be even better because, you know, he's jacking up. The thing that really pushed it over the top for me, other than, you know, I just think he was a better, the best player of those three guys. Like just, you know, he averaged 22 a game for Golden State in 06 for seven, five games. But I remember I was friends with Steve Kerr by the time the 2010 Suns team really rolled into a team that almost made the finals and unexpectedly in a lot of ways. And I remember when they traded for Richardson, just talking to Steve about it at the time. And he was like, this guy's such a good player. We had no idea. And I knew Nash a little bit at that point. Cause we were doing third for 30. And he was like, we had no idea. Richardson was this good. He just, not only does he fit in with all the stuff we love to do, but we can actually like throw him the ball and he can create a shot. And you look at the uh, the playoffs that year, they played 16 playoff games and he was 20 and five. He's 47.5% from three. So he's another guy that I, if you played his career 20 times, I wonder how many times there's a better version of what we ended up with. Where yeah, basically he's, he's Golden State in Charlotte for the first eight years of his career. Those teams sucked. I don't you know. I don't quibble with it. I you could throw these three wings in any order you want. I had them all ahead of Tyson Chandler just because I'm drafting with a little bit of an eye on 2020 versatility. Um I just I I just I never quite trusted Jason Richardson in a big spot. I just I mm. for some reason I never I just never maybe I'm maybe the missed box out he had for Phoenix in game 5 of those conference finals when Artest tips in the the Kobe air ball, his coloring perception of him. But I, the, we believe thing was like found money. That was just feel good, fun times. And they were a really good team. Um, I just, I just kind of never trusted Jason Richardson in like a, just a big, big, big spot. Never trusted him. So I had, I had him after Battier. So I will then take Battier with, what are we at the ninth pick? I'll take Battier ninth. Can I give you two trades? Jason Richardson was involved in. But he's, he's involved in a huge trade with Gilbert Arenas. So in 2008, Richardson and Jared Dudley to Phoenix for Raja Bell, Boris Diaw, and Sean Singletary. Steve Kerr just winning, winning that trade. He gets basically the best two guys in the trade because Boris, Boris kind of cratered a little bit there. And then in 2010, December, he's traded with Earl Clark and Hidu Turkoglu to Orlando. For Vince Carter, Marcin Gortat, Michael Pietras, and a 2011 first. There's a lot of stuff in that trade. I don't even remember that. Well, he goes, that's that's a three-team trade, and Gilbert Arenas is in that trade to Orlando as well. 
Um, that's there's a whole bunch of stuff going oh, on. Oh, that, that, that that's not in my basketball reference page. No, and then he's also he was in the insane trade uh, right near the end of the 2012 Olympics when all of a sudden Dwight Howard was traded. Yeah, he's, if you in look the, at he's in the Dwight Howard trade. There's so many names in that trade. The it the on his uh, basketball reference page, it's like a giant paragraph, like a War and Peace paragraph. Of, <laughs> look at he's, it's uh, huge. I just you, hit you, the thing. No, I have um, it up in front of me. I see it. Yeah, uh, Batty a ninth pick. I think it's fair. I think it's good value. I think a uh, couple things have to be mentioned just quickly with him. He's basically the the George Washington of advanced metric basketball players, right? The Michael yeah. Lewis piece about why Daryl chose him over Rudy Gay. The no, he, the no he, stats all-star. Right. He becomes the money ball, baseball, whoever the guys on the Oakland A's were that Michael Lewis wrote about for that. Scott um, Hatterberg. I, uh, his 2012 finals game, I'm sorry, 2013 finals game seven. They needed somebody to get hot who wasn't LeBron James, somebody to make some threes. It was either going to be him, Mario Chalmers, or Ray Allen. And if one of those three guys didn't make some threes, they're losing. And he got hot. But remember, we were working that year. And remember, we talked to him during that finals. Remember how bummed out he was? He wasn't playing. He wasn't playing. playing. He went, he went, he was like barely playing. And, and we were asking him, like, what's going on, man? You cool? And he just had that look like, there's so much I want to say, but I'm not, I don't want to upset the apple cart, but well, look I'm at so this, fucking mad I'm not playing. Look at this game log. Last three games against Indiana in the conference finals, eight minutes, four minutes, DNP. First four games of the finals, six minutes, five minutes, eight minutes, eight minutes. Then he's up to 17 and 12. And then in game seven, 29 minutes, six threes. That's a and, crazy game seven. And honestly, that's why they win because that game was was a two point game with a minute left at San Antonio of the ball. And if he doesn't make, if he if he goes zero for eight or one for eight, they lose. So Good. yeah, so I I had him. I just think Shane Batty is a winning basketball player. So I had him a little higher, but I will take. I had him seventh on my board, but I will gladly accept him with the ninth pick in this draft. I so can't you had wait Chandler to, I, and Richardson. Yeah, I I, I Both, went Batty. I went RJ six, Batty seven, J Rich eight. Tyson Chandler, nine. I can't wait to see who you pick 10. Well, for everyone scoring at home, there's now a drop-off. We have now entered yes. the Gerald Wallace, Memo Okor, Troy Murphy, Eddie Curry, Vlad Radmanovich, Kwame Brown, Sam Dallenbear, Jamal Tinsley, Earl Watson, Carlos Arroyo. Yeah, we can probably speed. Draft. We can probably speed through. Yeah, we, we're, we're, we're in the home stretch. I, uh... I really enjoyed Memo Okor. Yes, I, I'm I taking him 10th. I, I thought I was going to reach and have him 10th. He's a no-brainer 10th pick. It's it's a guy that for a couple years there was was first of all he finished his career as a 14 and 7, which I was surprised by. But then you look at some of the three point stats, dude. He was good. On a, yeah, an 08 and 09 combined. Oh, let's throw in 2010 too. Actually, uh, so three years on Utah competitive teams. And he's 40% from three, taking 3.3 a game, 15 and seven. But you think like nowadays with basketball, he'd be like coveted, right? He There'd would be like be, 10 teams after Memo Okor. He, he would be a, like he was and now would be even more in elite, uh, like a really good stretch five. Like Memo Okor was a really good stretch five. That's what he would be. He would be bombing threes. He would be 
On offense, he would be Brooke Lopez, except he would be taking twice as many threes. On defense, he would not be Brooke Lopez, but that he would be a dangerous, dangerous player. So I had him 10th. No, no brainer. 2008 playoffs, 12 games. They lose to the Lakers round two. 15 and 12. Those Utah teams that, were fun with Boozer and Okor and D. Will. Those were fun teams. 15 and 12 took 4.33s a game, 37% from three. So a little ahead of his time. Who knew? Memo Okor. Uh, a Mike Budenholzer kind of coach would get him today and be like, you're taking 12 threes a game. You're gonna, we're just right. going to pick and pop every play, and you're going to take a million threes. And he got hurt. But he's the other piece with him was he was on the Pistons originally. Yep. And they kind of fucked it up, and they got rid of him. And he's somebody that would have helped them in the mid two thousands as they, you know, went down some of the yeah, bigger he, series. He's, a tra- he's one of those guys where if you have him and you keep him, you're able to transition more smoothly from one era to the next without as much of a, a drop off. So I had him tenth too. So I get to pick eleventh. By the way, he played in an All Star game. Memo was good. Like I, I thought about, I thought almost half for fun and half for serious. I thought about taking him even higher than this. So the uh, the Pistons let him go in 04 that summer. They could have. I remember there was something where they could have locked him down and just decided not to. Um, it's it's hard when you you're that good to carry guys who you think are not ready to help you win immediately. But uh, Memo Okur was a good NBA player. Tore his Achilles. I believe he also tore his Achilles, and that sort of derailed his his uh, his career. I, I forgot he got he got a ring in 04. He played. 11.5 yeah. minutes a game on that 04 Pistons yeah, he was on the team. I, I have he was no a rotation player. I have no recollection of one thing he did in the 04 finals. I, I, I watched two of the games recently. I don't, don't remember anything he did. All right. Who do you have? Uh, what pick is this? 11? Yeah. 11. 11. I went uh, Gerald Wallace. Uh, yeah. Just, just if we could ever get the shooting a little better, the value, like just a guy who can guard everywhere and was a, you know, off the court, I think, uh, the stories about his diet and his habits are pretty well known. Like I, I, but I think on my team, we would have been ahead of the curve with personal chefs, like delivering stuff to his house in the off season. I would have made Gerald Wallace a a better three point shooter. And just, you throw in the defense, like Gerald Wallace was good, man. I, I have no, I'm fine with him at this pick. What was the, I don't remember the diet stories. What I think was he it? Is he like just well. an eat a like, hot think, dogs guy? Yeah, I think he, I think he was a bad eater. And, uh, and I would have rectified that. He was a really good player. I think when he, when he kind of declined fast, people were not, people in the league were not surprised that he declined fast, like after age 30. So he got Rod Stricklinitis? Maybe. There was, I was playing fantasy all, all the 2000s. That 2010 season he had, he had some good Charlotte. Those Charlotte teams were, Weirdly competent there for a couple of years. Captain Jack was involved there a little bit. Yeah. Um, but he he averaged 10 rebounds a game in 2010. He was 18 and 10. But I remember he had a couple of games that year where he'd have like 25 rebounds or like some crazy number. He'd be like, Jared Wallace? He's, he was a good was, player. How? You put a, little, you put a little guy on him, he could mash him in the post. Like prime Gerald Wallace could do a lot of stuff. We can't let a Gerald Wallace section of the podcast go without bringing up one other piece. Damian Lillard? Yeah. Three-player draft. Three-player draft for our guy, Billy King. Have you have you ever told the story in a podcast of when of the Billy King story, or is that... Should we just do it now? <laughs> We're at like the 80-minute mark. Billy and I have reconciled... Uh, well, reconciled is strong. We never like non-reconciled, but um, 
he was one of several NBA figures who did not like me on first blush because of you. It had nothing to do with me. It's just that I worked at Grandland. I had the nerve to take a paycheck from you who put him in the atrocious GM summit as just a regular. He's like a star of the atrocious GM summit multiple times. So I, it was, it was, it was very clear to me that I was being hated vicariously. He was not the only NBA executive to do this. Um, it was made known. It was made very clear to me that uh, I was not a friendly presence at the Barclays Center for a little bit. But we got over it. We got over it. He's a very nice guy. But uh, uh, yeah, he and by the way, he was not the only one, and he was friendlier than the other ones who who took their anti-Bill sentiment out on me. You know, it's funny. I always felt like I was job performance mean. At that point, especially like the from like two thousand mid two thousands on, I don't remember like getting super personal. Like with Billy King, it was just like this guy did a bad job. Like the Gerald Wallace trade is a negligent trade. You're doing you're you're trading for this guy's contract that Portland's delighted to get rid of for any first round pick. D. And Will you're not even him. putting the right protections. Because D. D Will needed veteran help and like Gerald Wallace. Yeah, it's just a bad trade. The stuff he did in Philly and then before he got bounced there, like kind of indefensible. Now, now I'm getting mad that Billy King was mad at me. How dare you get mad at me for, uh, all right. Uh, 12th pick. I only have one guy left on my board and then it gets dark. I, I thought Troy Murphy had a couple good years. We are, we are in lockstep lockstep. Yeah. Troy Murphy is like the, the slightly JV memo or Kerr. If he were today, people would just make him a stretch five. He would shoot a ton of threes and he was a really good shooter. So, as you know, my dad loved any left-handed white guy who reminded him of Dave Cowens was, is the quickest way to my dad's heart. My dad was very upset when they didn't take Troy Murphy with the 11th pick in 2001, the Celtics. And then as it became pretty clear pretty quickly that Kedrick Brown was destined for Yugoslavia or Spain or Russia or whatever country he was going to end up playing in, there was a Troy Murphy year, 05, yeah. He puts up 15 and 11 for Golden State and shoots almost 40% from three, too. He's like sneaky good three-point shooter. Um, and then became openly good when he got to Indiana because they actually had him shoot the threes. And my dad was just furious about Troy Murphy. You would have thought Troy Murphy was like the next Larry Bird. So, oh, man, we missed that. So his career didn't quite pan out that way. But, man, if you look at his 2009 season when he's 14 and 12, and he's taken five threes a game, shooting 45% from three. For his career, as a 39% three-point shooter. I, he would have had a better arc now. So, Trey Murphy, underrated. Yeah, I had of. him no, easily 12th pick. And I thought about taking him higher, but I just couldn't. But, yeah, he would just shoot a lot of threes. That's why my 13th pick, we're, getting, we're entering the part of the draft where I'm just defaulting to, like, can you do one thing really well? And is that one is thing rough. shooting? Right? It's sad. So I took my 13th. I took Radmanovich because yeah. I was just like, I know this guy plug and plays. He's a four. You can shoot threes. Like, could he be Davis Bertans now in the NBA? Just launch tons of threes. Not quite that quick a release, maybe. But I just defaulted to I know what this guy is. He's good at the most important thing. I'm taking him. Career 38% three point shooter. I also had him 13th. So now I have the last pick unless you want a 15th pick. No, go ahead. Um, so. It's basically Eddie Curry or Sam Dallenbear. So, so 
at two enticing choices. Sam plays 886 <laughs> games, peaking with a 10 and 10 on the 08 Sixers. Um, bounced around in a really insane way. Somehow played for six teams. Eddie, the case for him is that there, there's that that one Eddie Curry season where he is. <laughs> Your, your the case 05, is falling apart quickly. That one season. The 05 Bulls where he's putting up 16 a game in 28 minutes. Um, but I mean that you just can't win with Eddie Curry. So I'm taking Sam Dallenbear. I had uh, we we had I had Dallenbear 14. I I think he was a uh a, a good all-around player who could do who was a good shot blocker, had a little bit of touch, like a tiny bit of touch that if nurtured correctly could have been like a decent pick and pop touch. Um, right. Ran the floor. Good feel for the game. I took him over Eddie Curry. Eddie Curry, it, the plus minus stats were ugly, even when he was putting up numbers. Um, just because defensively, I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to take into account the health issues that were the reason the Bulls ended up trading him to the Knicks in like an all time New York Knicks bad trade. Um, but I took Dallin Bear as well. So the so that means picks one and four do not make our revised top 14. Kwame Brown or Eddie Curry. Yeah. Not to mention Eddie Griffin. And um, Dusana Jop, Rodney White, Kedrick Brown all fall out of uh, Eddie Griffin. All fall, Which I, did, I didn't know what to do with Eddie Griffin, but they all fall out of the lottery. So we went Gasol 1, Parker 2, Arenas 3, Joe Johnson 4, Zach Randolph 5, Chandler 6, Richard Jefferson, seven. Jay Rich, eight. Shane Betty, eight, nine. Yes. Memo O'Kerr, big winner of this pod, 10. Gerald Wallace, 11. Troy Murphy, 12. Rad Manovich, 13. Dallin Bear, 14. Before we go, which guy have you still not given up on yet from this draft, even though all of their <laughs> careers are over? Is there anyone <laughs> anyone you're still kind of holding out hope for? Uh, This is a great question. Um. I always had a soft spot for Jamal Tinsley, who was the 27th pick in this draft and had some decent years in the NBA and could really pass. So obviously he was a major participant in uh, the malice in the palace and some other stuff, but uh, I'm going, I'm, I'm still interested in Jamal Tinsley. So mine is, uh, I, I thought that was a great pick. I remember there was a Jamal Tinsley game where he had like at least 22 assists in a game or some Great crazy passer. number. I remember it's going passer. nuts. My guy is Bobby Simmons. I knew not it was going to I, he's I, I didn't want to take Bobby Simmons from you, but uh I just want to say in uh 2005 for the Clips, 16 and 6, 43.5% from 3. Granted didn't take a ton of threes. And then Milwaukee signed him. He cashed in uh and 42% from 3 that year. And then he got hurt and his career was never the same, but I really liked him as a three and D guy. I think he's the kind of guy that, you know, he could have had a Marvin Williams type career where he just played for 15 years and was a good teammate and made some threes and just kept going and going and going and going, but he got hurt. Yeah. And it's so funny, like guys get guy, one injury and it's just your career's over and, it, and it's so unfair. Some guys it happens to other guys. They're fine. Like, even in the Michael Jordan, the documentary that is coming out next week, he breaks his foot as a as a second year guy. And it, like, what if he had just continued to have problems with that foot for the rest of his career, and we never had Michael Jordan? 
You just never know. So I feel bad for Bobby Simmons because I thought he was good. I, if people could have bet preemptively on this podcast, they could have won a lot of money. I think on do they get through 90 minutes without the words Brian Scalabrini being uttered at any moment, the 35th pick in this draft. Not that he was going to be a candidate for top 14, but given his Celtics ties then and now as an announcer, you would think Scal, one of the red mambas, would would come up in this discussion somehow. He's probably a top 15 salary guy from this draft. Ooh, that's interesting. Because he... he he had that one contract where he made like fifteen million for five years or something. Curry ended up making close to a hundred million. I'm sure Chandler made a shitload. Gilbert had that one crazy, crazy contract that then Otis Smith ended up trading for, which was one of the dumbest moves of all time. Um, but yeah, some guys from this draft cashed in. Tony Parker probably had three different fifty to sixty million dollar deals at some point. Probably he probably made in the one fifty to one seventy trains show. Yeah, there we go. That was this fun. A good draft. This is a good draft. It was a fun draft. Um, so down the road, we're gonna do O nine with you on your on your pod. It's my favorite. O nine is my in recent vintage. O nine is just. I just kind of want to redraft the whole thing for like four hours. That whole that whole draft is like insane, and I love every second of it. So I'm looking forward to that. Zach Lowe, glad you're staying safe. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure as always. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for listening to the 2001 Redraftables with me and Zach Lowe. Stay tuned on this feed. We'll be running at least a couple more Redraftables, including the 2003 Redraft with my old nemesis frenemy friend, Chad Ford. This was the first draft we really battled over. That's coming up later. Um, And you can listen to his brand new podcast that he just launched too if you want to hear even more draft content there. Don't forget about the Bill Simmons podcast. Don't forget about the Rewatchables where we had uh, we have a couple of new ones this week. Total Recall is already up. Enemy of the State is coming later this week. And then next week, it's going to get super wonky. Stay tuned for that. And that's it. Stay safe.